to be or not to be? That is the question. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Don't be so dramatic. Hello and welcome to Don't Be So Dramatic. I'm Steve Bradley. Welcome to episode 18, the first proper episode of 2014. Last week was a pre-recorded show with Frank Barry, so we hope you all enjoyed that. So I hope everyone had a brilliant Christmas and New Year's. We're back now for the New Year with lots more guests coming up. But today, oh, have we got a show for you. On the 8th of January at the Actors Centre, it was the 4th off the record talk with Paul Clayton and his guest, Sir Derek Jacobi. Oh, it's a good one. So without further ado, go grab that cup of tea or cup of coffee or hot chocolate, even a couple of biscuits if you want, and sit back, relax, and listen to this amazing, inspiring talk with Sir Derek Jacobi. Brilliant to see so many people. Thank you, all of you, for coming along for this, our fourth off the record, uh, a series of chats with various people in theatre here at the Actors' Centre. Um, they always say that, you know, when you're starting new, 2014, start big. <laughs> well, it's probably going to be harder for us to start any bigger than my guest today. So please, would you welcome and say a big hello to Sir Derek Jacobi. <laughs> So no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Right. And um, that's our little thing that they came and told us about. Right, yes. We're being podcasted. Okay. So uh, if you fall asleep in any bit of this, you can catch up with it later. Now, <coughs> um, I always start by asking that thing, because I think it's the thing that's sort of common to all actors, is when did it, when did it start? Was there a germ? Was there a <laughs> moment when you thought, that's what I want to do? Um, no, no uh, not a particular moment. I th- I don't know where it came from, but I, on the night of my conception, a, a gene must have got in there somewhere. <laughs> where it came from, I don't know. But uh, there was never any um, debate in my own head about what I wanted to do. Um, I always wanted to perform. I always wanted to pretend. Um, and I, I was an only child, had wonderful, adoring parents. Um, I was also lucky that they were my friends. Um, and they spoiled me rotten, but they spoiled me in a very good way. They had nothing to do with theatre or um, culture in any way. I'm an East London boy. Um, you can take the boy out of Leytonstone, but you can't take <laughs> that boy. Um, so, so, but it was also in the days, you know, when kids could play in the street. Yeah. Um, and I played with my friends in the street. I dressed up in my parents' clothes. I went out and we, we, we made up little scenarios and um, then it, it seemed quite natural. Uh, there were no books in the house, remember? I never saw my dad reading a book. Newspapers, yes, but never read a book. So the, the house wasn't, wasn't um, a great hive of artistic activity in any sense at all. Um, but the wonderful thing was that uh, when I eventually said that I wanted to be an actor, a professional actor, 
they went with it 100%, 150%, because as far as they were concerned, I was entering a totally alien world. I mean, they knew nothing about theatre, nothing about the classics. Um, I did... I think, so. You're, you're watching the luckiest actor in the world. I have been dogged with good luck. It's what you need. And you, you, you need a modicum of talent. You need health, stamina. But you need luck. You need Luck in the sense of being given those opportunities to stretch your stuff. Um, and in that sense, I've been incredibly lucky. I've been given those opportunities. I've not had to wait table. I've not had to hustle. I've not had to play the room. It's kind of happened, and I am in that sense. I feel I have been very blessed, very blessed, and in a sense, very unusual. Um, for the first 11 years of my career, I wasn't out of work. I had three years at the Birmingham Rep, um, and then eight years at the original National Theatre at the Old Vic. So, 11 years, uh, of formative years, early years from the age of um, uh, 22, um, the next uh, 11 years, I, I, was, uh, I was in work, and that is extraordinary. And that's the title of your biography, as luck well, would have it. Have it. Yes, well, it, which is absolutely, absolutely true. Um, again, when, I, when I was a kid, uh, to go back to that, I, um, next door was uh, my lovely lady who taught me the piano. Okay. Uh, now, she was cultured, and she got me to join the local library. Uh, this was at the age of seven. And they had a drama group, and I did the Christmas play, which was a a dual role of the prince and the swineherd and, and, um, and as my mum worked in the drapery department of the local store in the Walthamstow High Street I got all the best frocks good all the best material um, and that was sort of where, where, where I started my, my, my parents took me to uh, I remember that, um, they took me to the London Palladium to see Cinderella and it starred Evelyn Lay and Noah Gordon um, as Prince Charming and Dandini. And in the course of it, I must have been about eight or nine, and in the course of it, the, the, the two ladies came down into the auditorium and picked out some kids to go up on the stage. So um, I, got, I got picked, and I went up and eventually got a balloon and some chocolate and then ushered back to my seat. Um, and then we fast forward years later to Westminster Abbey, and they're laying a plaque to Nell Coward. And I've been asked to read extracts from the Coward War Diaries. And sitting in the front row is an 86-year-old Evelyn Lay. And I couldn't resist going over and saying, Miss Lay, you won't remember me, but we <laughs> have worked together. <laughs> she was absolutely charming. She said, no, I don't remember. She said, but I do remember the show. I do remember the show. And you haven't done Panto since, have you? No, no, no I haven't. Never right. done Panto. OK. Never done Panto. And parents being very supportive and school and Cambridge then, yes? Mm. And was that where the seeds began to take hold and you suddenly well, found other people? And No, actually, the seeds had really taken hold before that okay. because I, I, um, I, I was in the local grammar school 
And uh, until uh, my voice broke, of course, I, I had to give my Lady Macduff and my Anne Boleyn <laughs> and all those um, classical ladies. Uh, then, thank God, the voice broke. And the first part I was given at school was Hamlet. And we had a very enterprising English master who uh, took us to the fringe of the Edinburgh Festival. This is 1957. Um, I am just uh, 18, 19. And uh, we performed on the fringe. Now, the fringe in those days wasn't like the fringe it is now. Um, it was very much the fringe. And, uh, but we, we did our show, all, all male cast, of course. We did our Hamlet. And we got some uh, national coverage. The, the, the main um, offering that year was a play called The Hidden King with Robert Edison. And it wasn't a success. And the critics came in and they said, look at the, the professionals fucking it up in the assembly hall and look at the, the, these kids um, being great on, on the fringe. And from that came interviews with George Devine at the Royal Court, um, a, a, a profile in The Observer, um, all, all sorts of things. Um, an interview by the head of 20th Century Fox, and I'm 18 going on 19, and just about to go to Cambridge. So I arrived at Cambridge with a reputation. Um, very soon, totally destroyed. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd, been in, I'd been in Cambridge for a week, and I wasn't in college, I was living in Diggs. And at the end of the first week, there was a knock on the door, opened the door, and it was John Bird. John Bird was in his third year, and he was a renowned director, student director. And he said he was going to direct this uh, play called All the King's Men uh, by Arthur Penn Warren, an American play. And he'd heard about me, he'd read about me. Would I like to play this uh, American psychiatrist in, in this production? Um, and I, of course, I was flattered and thrilled, and I did. I was abysmal. <laughs> I was totally miscast. I played it awfully, terrible accent. And of course, they all said, You see, he comes. <laughs> and of course, he took the rest of that term and into the next term before I kind of recovered from that and uh, again worked my way up through the Cambridge Mafia um, <laughs> and, and until the end of the third year. I, wrote begging letters to rep companies and got into Birmingham. And Birmingham was where it started professionally? But, yes, um, I was there for three years, 60 to 63. And then, because we all saw you recently in the fantastic 50 Years Gala for the National Theatre, because you were right there yeah. at the beginning. In, um... I, I was. I, 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 the, um, I will never forget it. The uh, very first night of the very first production was um, Olivier's uh, production of Hamlet with P Peter O'Toole. And I was down to understudy Laertes. Laertes was going to be played by Jeremy Brett. And as luck would have it, it happens all the time. Jeremy um, was bought out by Warner Brothers to play Freddie Hinesford Hill in My Fair Lady. Mm -hmm. And instead of replacing Jeremy, who was a star, uh, with another star to play Laertes, they upped his understudy, which was me. So on the first night, which was the 22nd of October, 1963, the first night of Hamlet, was my 25th birthday. And there was a party afterwards in the auditorium and up on the stage and all the glitterati were there. 
And I was boring the arse off everybody by saying, you know, this is the best night of my life. It's my, it's my 25th birthday. I have to play Laertes to Tools Hamlet, 25 on Olivia. And, and I was going around everybody telling them this. And, uh, <laughs> eventually, silence was, was called for. And on the stage, Shirley Bassey started happy birthday to you. <laughs> so it was a night I will never, ever forget. Ever, ever. What a wonderful story. So I knew when, we, when the 50th came up, I knew exactly the day to celebrate. Yeah. And did Shirley turn up as well? No. Yeah. No. I think she'd forgotten. And she... I, I don't think it really figured on <laughs> very highly on yeah. Was there a sense when you were there, when you were there that you were in at the beginning of something very special? Because there were an amazing group of people there yes, and people I who gave up was. big, yeah. you know, big careers to be part of yeah. that ensemble. Yes, there was. I mean, I, you know, we, we were kind of encouraged to to feel that we were at the centre of the acting universe, I suppose, because uh, it was the first time there had been a national theatre, and as you say. Um, wonderful leading star performance like Maggie Smith, like Albert Finney, like Bob Stevens, um, and, and even bigger the Gielguds and the Schofields, and um, had said, "Yeah, we'll be part of that, and we'll uh, we'll uh, check out of our careers outside, our film careers, our West End careers, and we'll become part of a, an ensemble for the first three years." And they were, um, and I, I firmly believe that they only did that. Um, because of him, because of Lily and his, his leadership. No one else could have, I don't think, got those people to sort of turn their backs on lucrative um, careers to say, okay, we'll be part of an ensemble for the next three years. And he chose um, a group of, of people um, to be given three-year contracts. Um, I, the group, it was only about 15 and, and they included Maggie and all those other people. Uh, but he also, uh, this was a, was a great feature of his leadership, he also encouraged several of the youngsters. So I got a three-year contract. Um, I was fresh from the Birmingham Rep. I had nothing to lose. Um, I had no career to give up. Uh, but I was, miraculously, part of that first set that were... were in work for the next, certainly for the next three years. Um, he, his generosity to the younger players was, was wonderful. Like, something he did to Gambon. He recognised that Mike Gambon was, was a wonderful actor, but he didn't have the parts to offer Mike in those early days of the National that he thought might encourage him and expand his talents. So he rang the Birmingham Rep. And he got Mike transferred for a year to the Birmingham Rep, where Mike could play all those wonderful leading parts and then come back to the National. Now, that, that's pretty something. Yeah. That's pretty good. And he, he had that generosity to all of us. He had many hats. He could be a bastard, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he, never, he never let us down. He certainly never it a bit like having a headmaster? Was it a, bit... Uh, a bit. I mean, he, he was all things to me. He was my director, he was my boss, my employer, he was my mentor, my fellow actor on many occasions, and ultimately uh, my friend, And because uh, I was with him for nearly eight years. And uh, uh, he, he did marvellous things like um, he'd invite 
a couple of the, the company, usually the youngsters in the company, down to Brighton for the weekend. You go after the show on Saturday night and you travel down to Brighton, usually with him, um, and you, you, know, you sit up, have some supper, a couple of drinks, go to bed. And then um, I always remember next morning, knock on the door, he comes in with my breakfast on a tray. <laughs> and he sits on the bed and chats. And he had the, all those many hats, you know? And, and suddenly you were part of his family. Next day, you were back in his office and he was chairing you off a strip, you know? Um, but he, he was, he was marvellous in that, in that you were part of everything that was, that was going on, um, personally and, and professionally, which was great. And so you're sort of where it's at theatrically, but you're, you're about to step into the world of television, which, of course, you haven't done at all in your training because you went to Cambridge or anything. No, I hadn't. I hadn't. The only television I'd done, we televised... We do, uh, Zeffirelli did a production of Much Ado About Nothing. Okay. Um, but they televised that. Uh -huh. um, that's the only uh, proper television they've done. Yeah. And then you do television, and as a result of one of those tellies, you become what a lot of people will associate you with for a long time, which is Claudius in I, Claudius. And I'm aghast to know. But you weren't the first choice. No, I wasn't. L luck again, you see. Luck, luck. Um, no, I wasn't first choice by any means. Um, originally, they were going to be. Uh, they wanted uh, a young Claudius and an old Claudius. And uh, the original idea for the older Claudius was Charlton Heston. Oh, right. And, okay. And uh, and also Ronnie Parker. He was another one that was in the frame. Um, because the rights to I, Claudius were owned by an American company called London Films, which was the old Alexander Corder mm -hmm. um, films. And so they wanted somebody that, the, uh, that, that was a star, that the Americans knew, or certainly <coughs> the English audience knew. Um, and then, so at some point in some office, they decided that, uh, no, they wanted the same actor to, to uh, play it right through so that the audience could identify with um, an actor who started teenage and finished up in his 60s. Um, as luck would have it, um, I had done a BBC Two classic serial called Man of Straw in 1971, um, which in which I played a character that aged from the teenage to early 60s. Directed by Herbert Wise and produced by Martin Lismore, the producer and the director of I, Claudius. And they, when this idea came out, they said, well, what about Derek? Um, the stumbling block was, uh, who the hell is Derek? <laughs> um, and one of the, my best performances ever was in a, um, an Italian restaurant in Shepherd Bush, <laughs> when I had to convince the two representatives of London films, two Americans, that I was a safe bet for Claudius. <laughs> and thank goodness, at the, end, at the end of it, they said, OK, we'll, we don't know who this guy is, but we'll go with him. And, and they did. And, uh, you know, uh, actors, if they're lucky, get one uh, part that they're associated with in the course of their career. Some actors will get more than one. Some actors don't get one at all. I, 
I got Claudius, and uh, so um, I I blessed Claudius. It it, it opened many doors, um, most particularly it opened America. Within two years of, of Claudius, I was on Broadway, which would never have happened uh -huh. um, if it hadn't been for Claudius. And it still holds up brilliantly now, because of course it's so theatrically filmed. Yes, in terms indeed, of when yes. you see it now. It is a piece of theatre, actually. Yeah. We, we were encouraged um, not to give kind of uh, TV performances, mumbling. We were encouraged to be... A, over the top, you know. Um, you look at John Stride in that, and, and, and uh, Brian Blessed, and Chan, and, and me, we're all way over the top. But um, it, kind of, it kind of works, because the writing is so good, um, the plotting is so good, the story is wonderful, and the way Herbie shot it was yeah. fabulous. I mean, taking its time, not cut, 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 but just looking at oh, that scene, yeah. going to him, and then going to her, and then... And, it's leisured and it's it's it's, it's great stuff. Are you a, are you a method person or are you a get on and do it person? Oh, I'm a get on and do it person. <laughs> no, no, um, no. I I I am not. It's 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 strange. Most English actors, I think, are get on and do itters. Uh, I, I remember um, Ken Branner telling the story about when he was doing the film of Much Ado About Nothing and. Um, trying to, to uh, direct Keanu Reeves, um, who would kind of stand with his face against the wall for half an hour <laughs> before he said anything. You know, and getting terribly upset with Ken and Co, because they'd be laughing and joking and you know, having a ball, and they were able to turn around, switch it on, and do it. Keanu was terribly upset by this and couldn't understand. And he was being a typical American you know, um, uh, actor in the, in, in studio, you know, the studio actor. Um, I remember when the actor studio came over here in, uh, oh, in the 70s, I think it was, with um, Three Sisters, with Kim Stanley, Luther Adler, and uh, my bête noire, and I've forgotten her name. Um, <laughs> Forgotten her name. Um, I was playing Arena. She took about an hour to say to Moscow, to Moscow, to Moscow. <laughs> oh, you wanted a killer. You wanted a shooter. Oh. Uh, and they, they weren't a success, actually. The, the, the critics lambasted them. Um, and the night I saw it, um, Kim Stanley was playing Masha um, at the curtain call. She's the centre of the curtain call. Turned her back and gave us her bum in the curtain call. Uh, because they were so upset that the critics had not not liked them, but uh, they were not likable. No, no, no. no. Um, and dictators is a bit of a speciality on television, isn't it? Because I knew you'd done Pinochet. Yeah. And then you, we've chatted about you also um, in, in um, the BBC Pinochet in suburbia. Yes. And then mm. Hitler. Yes, very unlikely Hitler. Um, uh, it's, it's, it, I think it's the only part that I've ever been offered that I've said, no, no please, you're making a terrible mistake. Um, I'm not in, in, you know, I don't really turn work down ever, um, take whatever's going. But in this particular instance, I said, well, well look at me, um, listen to me, um, be in my company for about a minute and you'll see how... Terrible casting, I am, for Adolf Hitler. 
and they said, this is a particular um, Hitler. This is, it, it was based on Albert Speer's biography inside the Third Reich. Uh, he said, this is Albert Speer's um, Hitler. This is a domesticated Hitler. This is a Hitler who is an actor. This is an, a Hitler who acts his rages. Uh, this is a Hitler who receives telegrams uh, from other world leaders in the new year, um, reads the telegrams out to all his henchmen in what he thinks is a good impersonation of the sender. And they all have to laugh and they all have to applaud. And, uh, it's that sort of Hitler who watches Busby Barclay movies, who fondles um, Blondie the dog. And, um, they said, we can make you look like him. You can make anybody look like him. Dye your hair, put it over there, put it on. You know, uh, a bit of that, and you're Hitler. And I, I said, okay, well, as long as, you know, you're, you're not wasting your money, because this is a million-dollar thing. Um, yes, of course I'm doing. And, uh, and, I, and, and I did. And... Uh, I loved it. I, the awful thing was the very first thing I had to do, the very first shot, was him um, at one of the mass rallies, doing the full, full thing. But um, they, had, they had given me an office in the studios in, in Munich um, for three weeks before we started shooting with a pile of cassettes um, of him. Um, he was the most photographed leader ever. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at these and studied him, studied the body language, the voice, and all those sort of things. Uh, and as close to an in, uh, impersonation of somebody that, that I've, I've ever done, I think. Um, and it, it, it sort of worked. It, was, it wasn't the greatest Hitler in the world, but it, it, kind, of, it kind of worked. And it was a wonderful cast. Rutger Hauer playing um, Speer. And Gilgood playing Speer's father, um, but it, it was it was what was good about it was that it came um, at the end of a two-year period that I'd not been on stage because I I uh, I was suffering stage fright, mm -hmm. and it lasted a good two years, and uh, it was a kind of worm of doubt that I put into my head very stupidly. Um, when I was finishing playing a world tour of Hamlet, and uh, I lost all confidence, and I and I put kind of catatonic terror into my stomach, and I couldn't get rid of it. Um, and it was easier to do anything with a camera. Even with a camera, I started to get very uptight. But it was while I was uh, sitting in a canvas chair on the set, dressed as Hitler, that they said, "There's a telephone call for." Um, I said, fine, who, who, do you know who it is? They said, it's the Royal Shakespeare Company, mm -hmm. Terry Hands. And I said, okay, I'll take it. Um, and I had always wanted to be part of the RSC. Mm -hmm. uh, the natural progression from the Birmingham Rep to the RSC um, had been, was, was taken by Albert, it was taken by um, Ian Richardson, by Schofield indeed, that if you got to play if you were the leading Jew at the rep, the natural progression, if you, had, if you were classically inclined, was Stratford, was only 22 miles away. Um, but uh, it had never happened for me, and I'd always wanted to, to go to Stratford. And so Terry rang and said, we'd like you to come next season. 
And there am I thinking, I will never get on stage again because I'm not, I can't, I'm too frightened. And I said, what do, what, what, what do you want me to play? And he said, uh, uh, Benedict in, in Much Ado, Prospero in The Tempest, Pierre Gint in Pierre Gint, and Serrano de Bergerac in Serrano de Bergerac. <laughs> a, nice, a nice quiet season, a nice, lots of evenings uh, off. And I thought, if I don't... It, it really was the archetypal offer you mm. cannot refuse. If I refused it, I thought, I will never get on the stage again. Never. I've got to, I've got to face those demons. I've got to get on the stage. Because that sort of offer is a once-in-a-lifetime. So I did. I said, OK, I, I, I'll, I'll do it. And the first one was much ado. Which, um, and it was a brilliant... I mean, it was a, a brilliant scene in 1982. Brilliant, that beautiful yeah. mirrored floor. Yes. And, uh, but that was what was so terrifying, because you walked you on see the stage, <laughs> you looked down, <laughs> and you saw yourself upside down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you were, as I was, very, very frightened, that didn't help. It was like being, by, it was like being in the film Gravity, you know? It was like <laughs> being in space. And, uh, and I sweated buckets. And, and, I, mean, I, I, I got through it, and, and uh, eventually um, I got better. I still have um, little intimations of it, so I don't like talking about it very much, because no. it comes back. Sure. But what was but the you do interesting talk about it beautifully thing. in your book. I well, have to say, <clears> you, you, as an actor, hearing you talk about it in the book, you make it very, very clear uh, what you went through and how you dealt with it, which is... Well, the, the, one of the interesting things was how many um, actors get through it. Yeah. Um, and while, while I was in the midst of it, I, I met lots of actors and actresses who... Um, had their own stories of stage fright to tell. And the common denominator, it seemed to me, was it usually happened in your middle years when you're being successful um, and it comes absolutely out of the blue. Yeah. And it, that was exactly what it did with me. I did it to myself, but it was exactly what it, it did with me. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about the RSC and the National and some big television series, but I want to get to the real meaty, meaty stuff now. I know what you're going to say. Um, <laughs> I bet I've been I in Doctor Who, haven't you? Oh! <laughs> I thought you were going to say in the Night Garden. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> uh, well, we could have a little bit of in the Night Garden, I think. But, um, let's, first of all, um, so you, you'd always wanted to be in Doctor Who. Yes. From the 60s. Yes. And you turned up as, as Doctor or Professor Yana. Yeah, who was the, the master. master. <laughs> you see, the uh, Hitler, Pinochet, uh, the, master. the master. It was extraordinary because um, lots of my, my, my friends, whom I didn't know were Doctor Who <laughs> fans, I nearly said freaks, um, <laughs> um, that, you know, when I announced that, that I, I was going to play um, the master, they went crazy. Mm, they did. Um, they, um, do, do you actually say I am the master? Um, <laughs> yes, I do. Ah! You say it! <laughs> oh, oh. And they, they were beside themselves. And it was like the apogee of my career. The only way was down from then on. The only. Have you done a convention? Have you done one of those conventions? Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> no, I have as well. Yes. Um, yeah. I've done. I've I'm two, actually. Oh, right. Two, yes. Where did you go? Glamorous yeah, I, locations? I, uh, no. Um, Earl's, Earl's Court. Okay. And Swansea. Right. Okay. <laughs> I 
think I managed barking, really, <laughs> about, about as far as I got. Um, but, but, you wait, but it is extraordinary, you know. I mean, you know, you know, I yeah. these these, these um, conferences. You sit there um, at a table, and there are lots of other people. There's Star Wars, and there's all sorts of things. So the place is full of Daleks and everything. <laughs> and you sit behind your table, and all your photos, they've provided all these photographs, yeah. and a queue forms, and they buy a photograph for about 10, you get 10 pounds a photograph. So they hand over their 10 pounds. You have a keeper sitting beside you who puts the 10 pounds in a box, and you sign, carry on. And, and this goes on from 9.30 in the morning until five o'clock in the afternoon. You sign, 10 pounds, you sign, 10 pounds. <laughs> I left Earl's Court with two bags with £10,000. They put me in a security car. <laughs> Can you believe that? And I mean, the stories are right. I mean, Pat Stewart um, allegedly walked out of one in Los Angeles with $250,000 in a suitcase. <laughs> Great way to earn a living. It was amazing, amazing. Yeah. I didn't earn so much in Swansea, though. No. <laughs> no, I have to say I didn't do quite as well in Bath. <laughs> All I remember is there wasn't a lot of natural fibre in the queue. You know, <laughs> no. A lot of polyester no. coming oh, up oh to, God. to get signed. It's, it's the halt, the lame and the downright ugly. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I've got a quote, so I'm going to read this, oh. all right? Because at the time you said... One of my ambitions since the 1960s has been to take part in a Doctor Who. The yes. other is Coronation yes. Street. So I've yes. cracked Doctor Who now, and I'm still waiting for Corrie. Yes. So um, what are you going to do in Corrie, then? Well, what do you want them to get you to do? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, what, I would like to ape what, what Ian McKellen did. Six weeks in Corrie, character that... No connection with anybody in, in Corrie, so you can, <laughs> you can introduce him and get rid of him. As, as you want, and it was the perfect job. He and you know was a Corrie fan. Um, six weeks, he came in as a con man, and six weeks later he left. Great, um, but I, I can I can only think of of, of a um, a storyline of me um, a kind of visiting actor Lovey, who's playing at the Palace in Manchester or something, <laughs> who who um, has a B and B with Emily. Um, oh, right, okay. <laughs> like that. But um, they, they haven't picked up on that. So. <laughs> but I would love to. I would love to. But you proved, you, I mean, you proved your credentials because I have to go into absolute fan mode now. Um, can't Alan and Celia from Last Tango in <laughs> can't they just go and live near Audrey? <laughs> yes, yes, that would be good. You know, that would be, be good. Yeah, and, and, of course, it would have... A, a wonderful, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, because um, Anne Reed, yeah. Celia, started in Corrie. She was nine years in Corrie. Yeah. She only got out of it by electrocuting herself. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, full so, circle. That's what I'm trying to do. So, Last Tango in Halifax, which we've just finished another series of, so yes. it's immensely successful. Yes, yeah, amazingly successful. I, um, I don't think any of us thought that it would have that kind of success, but it, it was wonderful. And a very human story. 
Yes, it, yes, it is. She writes so well. She writes so well, um, with such heart and truth, you know, and and and, and reality, emotional, emotional reality, and that kind of writing, I think, is pretty pretty rare, uh, and and it's all done in in within the confines of a family, you know. There are, there are no effects. There are no great. Um, television m moments, really, apart from uh, the relationships that, that uh, exist in that family. And so, suddenly, it's, twice it's, at the at the, at the same time as on the on the commercial channel, you've been allowed to be well. Yeah, well yes, over Christmas, over Christmas, I was married to Anne Reed on the BBC, and I was married to Ian McKellen on ITV. <laughs> <laughs> So any forthcoming marriages coming up this year for anybody? Um, we, I could chat all day, but uh, we better open up to some questions. That we did say there might be an embarrassing pause here. There normally when, is when, when you we open up to questions. any questions. Yeah. But look, right mm. on the front row, somebody's saving mm. us from that. Uh, so we'll come yeah. to you first, as your hand was straight up there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, do you think there could ever be a stage production of Vicious? A stage production of Vicious? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 it became known as, as the, the Marmite sitcom. You loved it or you loathed it. <laughs> um, and I, I think more people loved it than loathed it, but there were quite a sizable pe people who, were, who didn't get, were upset by it. Um, and, and a lot of people in, in the gay community certainly said, you know, it's not like that. Um, we don't behave like that. Um, and thought it was too stereotypical. Um, I don't agree, um, I, and I, I thought it was full of fabulous one-liners, most of which Marcia Warren had. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know whether... No, I think basically its home is where it is, is where it's at, really. Um, but uh, we are going again with it. Um, and uh, the directive from ITV is to get it out of that room. That's the directive. So there's going to be a lot more um, location work, I suppose. Does that know. fill you with joy? Uh, the, the only plot line that I've been told is that my character runs the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Uh, Question. There's a hand there in the second row. Thank you. I'm just curious about the nose and mask of tango. Yeah. Um, you, in your autobiography, speak of being an accomplished dancer. And at the end of the last uh, episode, you do a dance routine with some other fellows. Yes. Uh, at the wedding reception. And I'm just wondering, were the rest of the cast, other than the, the, the dancers, totally unaware of that? Because the looks of astonishment on the likes of Anne Lake's yeah. face, well, all performing, is just so spontaneous. Well, the, 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 the thing about that was that Anne put this thing out. Years ago, I um, was at a party with Anne's best friend. And this best friend and I uh, took to the floor. I was a great jiver in those days. I loved jiving. And uh, we took to the floor and cleared the floor and one of those stories. And Anne said, when we started the series, I hear you're a good dancer. And so in, in the very first series, she and I did a jiving sequence. Um, 
which I have to say, because of filming, you know, we started at 8 o'clock in the morning. We were still jiving at 1 o'clock, lunchtime. Um, these two 70-year-old people uh, nearly killed me. Anyway, um, what they did was they, they knew that they were expecting a bit of a dance. What they weren't expecting was the singing. And so what they, they, the director did was before we did anything, put the cameras on Annie and Sarah Lancashire and Nicola and put it on them. Because they didn't know what was coming. They didn't know what little um, interlude we were going to present. So then the boys and I sang and danced. So their reaction was totally genuine because they, they hadn't seen it rehearsal, they weren't allowed to watch us rehearse. So to them, it was absolutely new. They didn't know what was coming. And then this silly song about, if I'd said you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me? Came out. Um, so it, that was genuine. Their reaction was totally genuine. Yeah. It is a, quite a mind-blowing moment to watch at the end of that series, <laughs> that, uh, which was a joy throughout. Um, there, we stay down the front, and then I'll come up to you. Yes, you. You, um, yeah, you didn't mention um, Cadfail. I just wondered what uh, memories you have. Oh, oh, fond, lovely memories. Um, it, we, we did, uh, I think it was five seasons of it. Uh, they were all made in Budapest and Hungary. Um, and that was a joy, actually, um, going over to, to Budapest for 10, 12 weeks each year for, for, for five years. Um, there were many more stories to go when it was pulled. Uh, I loved doing it. I loved doing it. Um, uh, and we, it was never really uh, supported by... by uh, it was Carlton Television. They really didn't wholly approve of it. It was kind of... I, I remember once we were... There was a directive came down that all the monks had to wear boots because long skirts and sandals weren't kind of manly enough for commercial <laughs> television. Um, actually, it worked to our benefit because you know, some, some of the time we were there in the winter and if we'd been wearing open-toed sandals, we'd have got rather cold, but with the boots, it was better. But it, it wasn't really... It was shown in the summer. It was usually shown in August mm -hmm. when everybody's on holiday. It wasn't promoted enough, but um, I loved it. It was, it was, and it went terribly well in America. I had to go over to. It was shown on PBS in America, and they they did this great reception where they served mead. Um, they they had all these minstrels playing, and there was this huge banner with which they advertised Cat File. And in a very typically American way, it read, serves God, solves crime. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. The lady up there. Besides an appearance in Corrie, are there any other roles that you'd like to play? Besides Coronation, Besides, is there anything uh, else you want to do? Um, I, uh, oh, gosh. Um... I think I'd like to do a play that's not yet been written, um, that's out there in somebody's head, that nobody's ever seen, uh, that's got my name on it, 
Um, so when, when you do play the, 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 you know, the big classics, you're always compared to the 600 people that have played it before you. It will be, and I've not done very many original plays. I suppose Breaking the Code was one that yeah, I loved. Absolutely. It was a great, great play. Um, but I've not done many original plays, and I think that's what I would love to do in, in, as a kind of swan song. Uh, a new, unknown play with a fabulous past. <laughs> Which is what breaking the code was, wasn't it? Oh, breaking the code was indeed. It was, it was, it was wonderful. Um, I was rather angry recently um, when it was announced that uh, uh, Alan Turing was given a pardon. Mm -hmm. He didn't need a pardon. He needed an apology, not yeah, a pardon. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In the centre, sir, there. Um, I should talk about In the Night Garden. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but I want to ask you, how, I mean, you've played so many different roles. Over there, right? Can I ask you, how do you, if, if you're not a method actor, how do you find the character? I mean, have you got any specific techniques, any, anything you do, anything you... Can I just ask, do you watch The Night Garden? I do. Oh! <laughs> I have two grandchildren. Oh, I see. <laughs> Although my six-year-old finds it rather childish. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, it's 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 meant for um, one to four-year-olds, yes, really. Yes. So he's a bit he's a bit old. Um, no, I. It's I find it very difficult to talk about how you do it. Um, I'm often asked, uh, do you give master classes? <laughs> <laughs> it's that word master that scares them. <laughs> Get out of here. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I, I can't give a master class. I, I have not mastered what I do. I can understand um, a, a musician, a singer or a player, uh, being able to say, this is how you do it. But of course, then you add yourself and you add your own spirit, your own soul, uh, your own mind to what you're doing. But as far as acting is concerned, it is so individual. Each, each actor is, is so different that there is no, there is no norm. There, there is no trick. Uh, when you talk about acting, you talk about the craft of acting or the skill of acting, but it, the, the, it, the word trick is also a part of, of um, the portfolio um, when it comes to acting. And we're, you know, actors, are, we steal things from other actors, little moments, that, um, little choices. Uh, acting, I, I think, is all about, uh, on one level, choice, what you choose to do and what you choose not to do. Um, but always to go for the truth of what you're doing, the truth of what you're feeling. And that does not require you turning your face to the wall for half an hour. <laughs> um, and at, at the same time, making it accessible to the audience, not to do it for yourself, not to make it all masturbatory. Share it with the audience, because you're doing it for them. Who else are you doing it for? Um, they are the ones that have got to feel. If 
um, you can um, encourage them to feel in a certain way, then that's what you do. If the sight of you crying triggers tears in them, fine. But that's not necessarily the case. The sight of you trying not to cry might trigger uh, tears in them. Um, but it, it's basically doing it not for yourself, but being aware, like a third eye in the middle of the, of the auditorium. You are absolutely in what you are doing, but you are also at the same time aware of the effect it is having out there. Otherwise, why do it? Uh, the, it because you're doing it to affect you to take you on a journey with me. I know what's going to happen. I know how it ends. I know uh, all, all the things you're going to meet on the journey, and I've got to be prepared to share them with you, show them to you, um, and give them to you. Um, so I think at the, at the end of the evening, they should not be leaving saying, oh, what a wonderful actor. They should be leaving saying, what a wonderful experience. What a wonderful time we've had. A very special time, a very unique time, because it can never be repeated in exactly the same way, because what the actor does and what the audience brings is never identical, any two performances. So what, what, if, if I read the word in a, in a review, um, saying somebody gave a bravura performance. You can bet your life they didn't look at anybody else on stage. A bravura performance is always a show-off performance. Uh, it's, it's asking the audience, look at my talent. Just get a load of my talent. You just, well, I'm going to do something now that's not your eye out. That's bravura. It's very attractive, very attractive. It's full, usually, of energy. Energy on stage is very attractive. But it's not the real thing. Uh, yes, sir. Actually, Derek, um, strangely enough, I recently bought a book from Paul's bookshop down the road here called How Not to Act. Oh. And it was by a chap called Harold Guston, I think. And the reason I mention this, I have an acting coach. The first thing he says at his workshop most of the time to the students is, I don't teach people to act. I teach them not to act. And the reason he says this is he, he prefers people to be natural. Can you teach people to act? No, no, you can't. No, you can't. Um, I, 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 I have to admit, I didn't go to, to drama school. Mm -hmm. um, it was a conscious decision. Um, when I left university, um, I, I could have applied to a drama school. But I was at Cambridge, which had a veneer of professionalism about it. Mm -hmm. And we'd worked with professional directors who'd come back, old students who'd come back, who were in the business. Um, and I was, along with many of my contemporaries, too eager to get into the business. And it was easier in those days. We, you know, we're talking about, I'm talking about 1960. Um, and uh, so I thought, a rep is what I need. Um, I, think, I think already I'm an actor. Um, I need experience now. I don't need teaching, because I don't think you can teach me um, how to be an actor. I am an actor. I know I'm an actor. I can feel it. I sense it. I know it. And during the, the, the course of Cambridge, of course, we'd, we'd done productions, always in front of, a, um, of, of an audience. Um, it was the blind leading the blind, yes, and 
half the audience were family and friends, yes, but they were live people react, reacting to you. So I, I firmly believe that anybody goes to drama school, they, they are actors when they walk through the door on the first day. They, the drama school teaches them their good points, their bad points, what they must um, emphasize. They could teach them vocal technique, uh, movement technique, um, fencing, all that sort of thing. Um, all those things that um, an actor might be required to use, uh, particularly voice and body. Uh, but the kernel of the actor is in there to start with. That cannot be implanted. Um, nobody can put that in you. You've either got that or you, or you haven't. I firmly believe. So I would agree with you on that. There was one more person who had their hand up. I'm going to come to you. Hi. Um, thank you. This is really fascinating. Um, I was going to ask about reviews, actually. Do you read press? Is it something now you do and you didn't used to? I don't. I don't. I haven't for many, many years. Um, because um, acting is very stressful. Um, it's, it's very emotionally draining. Um, and one of the uh, stresses that uh, I am in charge of, that I can get rid of, is reading the critics. You know, the old adage, you get a bad review, you, you, that's the one you remember. Um, good reviews, well, if they're too good, you start acting the review and all. So they can, in that sense, be dangerous. But um, I, I, I stopped reading them years ago when um, at Chichester in 1967, um, I, I was given my first leading role in a play. It was only half the evening. Um, the first half of the evening was Miss Julie with Maggie Smith and Albert Finney, and the second half was Peter Schaffer's Black Comedy, which had never been seen until then. It was the premiere of Black Comedy, which also had Maggie and, and Albert in it, but I was playing the lead. It was my first leading role, and it was a huge success. And on the first night, um, we all went and had a quick drink in the pub in Chichester, and then... Uh, we were filming next day Olivier's Othello, and I was playing Cassio. So um, we had to go to Shepparton overnight. And next morning, I got onto the set, and Sir Lawrence was sitting there with all the papers. Uh, and uh, I knew that the show had gone fantastically well. And he said, don't read, don't read the papers. And it's another hat he had because the reviews were good. I didn't read them, I was told they were good, because I went everybody, I was telling everybody, he told me not to read the reviews, they must have been terrible. No, 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 they were good, they were good. A little, I don't know why he did it, I can guess, but I don't know why. So I stopped reading them. Fast forward, I'm playing Serrano de Bergerac at Barbican. I'm driving to work, and there's a copy of The Times, in the passenger seat. I drive into the car park, park the car, I think. <sighs> <laughs> last, last night, they were on their feet. I mean, you know, um, they loved it. They loved it. <laughs> Irving Wardle. Once in every decade, an actor comes along, born to play Cyrano de Bergerac. 
Derek Jacobi is not that actor. <laughs> <laughs> never since have I read a review. Never, never, never. Of other people, yes. Never. <laughs> never. No, no, no. We could chat for quite a while, but I'm afraid, as always happens, our hour is up. Uh, it's an indulgence for me to get the chance to, uh, to chat to you, and I'm sure uh, the people here have enjoyed it as well. So would you please join me in thanking undoubtedly one of our greatest actors, but also an absolutely lovely man to spend an hour with, Sir Derek Jacobi. Thank you. And there it is. Well, wasn't that amazing? Sir Derek Jacobi, what an amazing guy and uh, just incredible. Everyone was blown away and just was on a buzz, absolute high after that talk uh, in the uh, cafe afterwards. And I'm still buzzing from it now. So um, keep that one locked away for future because I'm sure all of us could listen to that again and again. So if you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more, then please rate us on iTunes out of five stars. Please write us a little positive review and we'll keep the shows coming to you. The next Off The Record will be announced by the Actors Centre, so check their website out for all the details, actorscentre.co.uk, and make sure you book in, the, book in your place next time there's an Off The Record talk. Check us out next week. We'll have another show for you with more guests and check out our website, don'tbesodramatic.com, for more articles and news and all sorts of things on the acting world okay that's it for this week thanks everyone for listening i'm steve bradley don't be so dramatic <laughs>